Let's open our Bibles to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 21. If you have um, a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you pass that to the center aisle, we'd love to collect it. And we are thankful that you're with us today. As we've been talking um, this week and last on the danger of doing what is right, living based upon what is right in our own mind and thinking. Um, during my college years, I was a new Christian, and I remember being provoked by an editorial that I read in the uh, school paper, the Kentucky Colonel. And um, one of the um, student writers decide, re- decided really to spew his cynicism and unbelief far and wide uh, through his column. And basically, his, his piece demanded answers for, from God for his failed leadership of the universe. And he poked at Christians by calling us hypocrites and mocked our allegiance to Scripture and to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, namely that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And, you know, I just had had enough, really, and in my feeble effort, picked up my pen and tried to write a response to it and eked one out and uh, I'm grateful that they published it the next week. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people turned to Christ based upon that rebuttal, but I felt better about it. You know, truth is often slain in the streets and you, I just really am, am, am seized in this moment in our, in our life, in this world to speak for Jesus Christ. There is salvation and no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Well, from that experience, a couple of scriptures remained etched in my mind as, you know, why does this world rebel against God's uh, revelation? Why does this world chafe under his revealed truth? Psalm 2 comes to mind and the psalmist said, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Rather than humbling ourselves before the Lord, we curl our lip and bow our chest and resist his commands and think of all of these arguments on why we need to do it our way. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, the psalm says. And how does God respond to this rebellion? He laughs. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. And it's not because he's laughing at a good joke, it's a laugh of derision. Basically, you have no concept what awaits you to reject my, my word. And then some, excuse me, Isaiah 55 was the second text that came to me um, during that time. And the prophet writes, for my thoughts, speaking for the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now what should that cause us to want to do based upon that is, Lord, we want to do it your way. We, we know what it's like to do it our way. We know what comes with that. But there is joy and peace and blessing when we submit ourselves to your word and to your way. I want to know that. Lord, teach me your way. Unbelief is seen not only in the acidic remarks of a skeptic, but sometimes unbelief is seen when God's people fall away from the truth and begin to function in what seems right in their own eyes. You hear it in phrases like that in church ghettos. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I know the word says that, but 
I know the Bible says this, but you know, whenever I hear that, I, I just sense you're on the brink of a disaster. Now, I understand wrestling with the text and wondering, you know, how does this really apply to my life and uh, how does this speak to the church today? I understand that. But always looking for a loophole to do what you want to do is a dangerous way to look at the Bible. Um, and I think that's summarized in Judges 21 where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The world often sees believers as the cog in the wheel. Marvin Olasky in his book, Standing for Christ in a Modern Babylon, uh, noted bias against Christianity. And we take, we take ownership for when we misrepresent Christ. But at the core of it, when we look at biblical Christianity, what believers have believed for millennium, there's a bias against it. Christians are anti-choice. Christians are fixated on moral, uh, legislating morality. By, by the way, when, when, when did legislatures not legislate morality? A every bill is a, is a legislation of a moral claim. And so our part is to want to contend earnestly for laws that are good and for the good of people. Many believe that we oppose the First Amendment guarantee of religious freedom. We're just trying to eradicate all the other religions and and demand our, no, we understand we live in a pluralistic culture and a society. We realize our constitution, there's no establishment clause in our constitution. We want to freely declare the gospel without hindrance from the state. We're opposed to diversity. No, we're not, because the God we believe in, the savior we follow, is gathering a people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and land. Our, Diversity is not defined by skin color. It's much deeper than that. It's our unity and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Many view believers as gullible followers of potential dictators. Many think of Christians, you're just so negative. You're always talking about what's wrong. Well, we understand how that goes. Some people are so negative, they, blew, they boo the second coming. We're not wanting to be, fall into that category. But sin has painted a dark picture and the hope of the gospel is really light in the, in the midst of darkness. And so we want to hold that up. The psalmist said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Written originally to Israel, but certainly applies to any nation that embraces God's word. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls for surrender in all areas of life. So I thought I would take us back to the book of Judges where you see God's people wandering it really in the, from one bad experience to the next because of their disobedience. Let me note several things this morning. First would be when God's people drift from his word. When God's people drift from his word. That is the picture of Judges from Judges 1 to 21. One drift after the other. And if we were to hold up the book of Judges, it's a transitional period between the conquest of Joshua, when Joshua finally led Israel to cross the Jordan and to enter into the promised land based upon the command and promise of Yahweh. And so they entered into the promised land and Joshua led them and he was told, be strong and courageous. And 
And they went to Jericho and then onward to Ai and then uh, made progress through the book of Joshua. And all the way through, while there are many victories, you, like all of biblical history, there's this longing for more. There's a, this longing that we live in a world that, that falls short of God's glory. There's a longing for a savior and a Messiah. Nevertheless, the days of Joshua were strong. The report on Joshua's leadership was faithful that God kept his good promises to Joshua and his people. And Joshua admonished them in the, in the last chapters of Joshua, be faithful. As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. You need to follow what I'm doing. They say, yeah, we'll do it. Well, you come to the book of Judges and they're not even a generation in and the writer of Judges says, there, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord, who did not follow his ways one generation in? And so Judges is a cycle of about seven patterns that go like this. Israel disobeyed, God sent, God sent um, an enemy. Israel cries out to the Lord as they're choking on the husks of their rebellion. God has mercy on his people, just like he did when they were in uh, Egypt and they cried out to the Lord and the scripture says in Exodus that the Lord heard their cries and came to them and raised up Moses. Disobedience brought judgment, crying out to the Lord, God brought a judge or a redeemer and again, the judge in judges is not a, a dark-robed individual rendering judgments, it's a deliverer, a savior and God is the only true savior because you look at these Judges, and you wonder, how could it be? And so everyone was, was doing what's right in their own eyes. This was before the kings. The kings, for all of their problems, did provide stability. But everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They had left the warnings of Deuteronomy. And we don't really take this in, I think, as the church. The importance of Deuteronomy in the time of Joshua and the kings and the prophets all through their history. To ignore that covenant statement of God meant to decline and to go into the wilderness spiritually. So what were several things that they were um, susceptible to? Why were they in the, this pattern, this cycle um, of, um, of, of judgment and trouble? I wanna mention four things as we look at judges. In fact, um, as leaving the last verse in, in, in Judges, that everyone did what was right in, in his own eyes. Let's turn back to Judges 2. Judges 2. Israel's disobedience, followed by the death of Joshua. It says in verse 10, the verse I alluded to a moment ago, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's astonishing. It says in verse 15, because of their obedience, that the hand of the Lord was against them. So you leave covenant faithfulness, you enter into disobedience. This is part of that of that judgment. And we're gonna see a parallel to that in just a minute in Proverbs 3, that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines as a son. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You see that all the way through Judges. You're going to neglect my covenant, you're going to neglect my word, you, you will answer for that. Do you, 
Do you believe that? That there's consequences for your decisions? Amen. Do you believe that there are consequences for what you decide to do? We live in a, in a world that seems astonished that I'm, I, I am eating the bitter fruit of a lot of bad decisions. Rather than taking ownership and say, I need to get right with God. I need to repent of my sins and know the healing of God and begin to walk in his ways. There's a stubborn, steadfast resistance to it. So just in looking at when God's people drift from his word, it's usually because first of of covenantal amnesia. Forget what God says. Start living the way you want. It says in verse 15, the hand of the Lord was against them. When the hand of the Lord is against you, it's not good. It's a, it's a no-win proposition all the way through the Bible. You've heard me say many times. That's a fascinating study. Look at all the times that God says the hand of the Lord was against and the hand of the Lord was with. Now, which would you want in your life? I want the hand of the Lord on my life. Well, one thing that is for sure, that's not going to happen as long as you're calling the shots. At the heart of being a Christian means I surrender my will and my life to the hands of an all-sufficient Savior who has called me to to die to self and to take up my cross daily. We read this phrase with Pharaoh in Exodus 9, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused And it says that the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence. In the days of Samuel, when the Philistines stole the ark, now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Philistines. Was it ever? They couldn't wait to get it out, the ark out of of their precinct. In 1 Samuel 7, 13, the the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against them. And then you look at the hand of the Lord with them. It was the hand of the Lord that parted the Jordan. It was the hand of the Lord that parted the Red Sea. It was the hand of the Lord that brings God's blessing. It's a, it's a word picture that describes God moving to accomplish his purposes. So covenantal amnesia. They had left the covenant of God. They had departed from his, and started doing whatever they wanted to do, embracing false gods. Something else we find in the book of Judges is shallow doctrine and faith. Amnesia with regard to God's commands breeds a shallowness in doctrine. If you're not studying the scripture, you're not growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. If you're not seeking to understand the Bible in your life through rigorous study, yes, we want to hear it. Yes, we want to read the Bible. Yes, we want to study it, but we want to memorize it and meditate upon it day and night. We're bringing it into our life. I fear few Christians ever do that. Or we wouldn't be making the decisions we make. It leads to shallow doctrine and faith. I was reminded of the Judge Gideon. His story begins in Judges 6. And he's he's timid. He, um, he's, He's a timid judge at first. He's the youngest and 
God calls him out to deliver his people from the Midianites, and the Midianites were doing this. Israel would work hard to plant their crops. They would work hard to, uh, to, in order to eke out a living, and the Midianites would come and absolutely devour the crops. And Israel cries out to God, Lord, help us. And so the Lord comes to Gideon. It says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, and, which belonged to Joash, and while his son Gideon was beating out weed in the wine press, hiding it from the Midianites. Why was he hiding it? They were going to steal it. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I wouldn't have called him that. <laughs> he seems to be backing away and shying away from the call of God all through this narrative. And so he's reminded, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Verse 15, please Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. In other words, we're, I'm the last of the least of the lot. I can't deliver anybody. Well, that's true, you can't. But my power working through you can. Why would, I, why would I hold up Gideon here? His story is incredible as God would bring deliverance through Gideon, not with more army, but with less to see the power of God. But Gideon seems to be timid and he seems to be shallow in his doctrine because he's a fleece caster. You ever heard someone say, you know, I cast a fleece? You, you heard that? Yeah, well, it comes from Gideon. And God's already called him. God said he would be with him Go and deliver my people, and Gideon is not really wanting to move to the battle. And so he's wanting to cast fleece, which we see in Judges 6, 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, behold, I'm going to lay out a fleece. <laughs> so he goes through this over two days uh, with laying out a fleece, and God humors him goes along with it. But let me just say, this is a sign not of strength, not of discernment, not of wisdom, but really of weakness. When you live in the days of the judges and you have covenantal amnesia and you're not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a fleece caster rather than straightforward obedience. It also led to fear, a timidity, all of us have to deal with fear. We have to deal with fear. When God's people drift from his word, it doesn't, it doesn't bring about courage and boldness. It brings about a sense of fear. There's a reason Philippians 4, 6 is so popular on the, in the Bible. Be anxious for Nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a reason that's such a popular verse. It's a wonderful invitation to lay my anxiety over onto the Lord and to trust him, to stand for truth in our generation. And, you know, as I look at the story of... Um, Gideon, there's something else that comes to mind, and that is how easily we're swept into sin. 
when you look at the culture of the judges and the bad examples from within, you know, one of the first assignments he's given is to cut down or just to, to wipe away the Baal altar in his father's yard and to cut down the Asherah pole. Now, you have to wonder and ask yourself, what is an Israelite doing with a Baal altar in his front yard and an Asherah pole right beside it? What, what's, what's happening here? And so in a moment of courage, Gideon cuts it down and it causes an uproar. And so people are, when, when God's people drift from his word, lo and behold, we find Baal altars in our front yard, Asherah poles in our life. And we wonder, how did they get there? Well, I've been listening more to the culture rather than the scripture. I'm being more informed by what, what's popular in the day rather than what God's call on my life is. And then when you speak the truth, it all breaks loose. I, I, was, I was really impressed this week with Tony Dungy. I don't know if you follow that in the avenues of, avenues of news that you look at. Tony Dungy, a longtime uh, NFL coach and pro football analyst, uh, he coached um, from 1996 to 2008. He led the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and uh, the Indianapolis Colts. He had a great record, was a Super Bowl champion, and is an unapologetic Christian. And he spoke at the National Right to Life uh, event this week. Um, and he invoked the name of Damar Hamlin, who was the recent NFL player who fell down on the field with a, went into a cardiac arrest. Anyway, this is what Coach Dungy says at the Right to Life um, march. Uh, Damar is recovering now. He's home. He's been released from the hospital. But what's the lesson in that? You know, an unbelievable, unbelievable thing happened that night, a professional football game with millions of dollars of ticket money and advertising money on the line. That game was canceled. Why? Because a life was at stake. And people wanted to see that life saved. Even people who aren't necessarily religious got together and called on God. Well, that should be encouraging to us because that's exactly why we're here today. Because every day in this country, innocent lives are at stake. And the only difference is they don't, be, they don't belong to a famous athlete and they're not seen on national TV. But those lives are still important to God and in God's eyes. I thought that was an incredibly courageous thing to say. And the moment he invoked Damar Hamlin's name, the critics came out in full force. But Tony Dungy, he didn't give a rip about that. And I love the, the, the statement by Princeton professor Robert George who said, the problem for Tony Dungy haters is that the man knows what he believes and why he believes it. He neither lusts for their praise nor fears their animosity. They can't intimidate him, nor in the end will their cancellation campaign against him succeed. He's bulletproof. Amen. May his tribe increase. May it increase in our hearts and lives to live for God in our generation. When God's people drift, it's because they leave the moorings of his word. They enter into doctrinal error and shallowness. They lose courage to speak the truth. Oh, as we leave here today, may our tongues be loosed to praise and to declare uh, his incredible mercies. So 
we need regular cleansing of the word in order for that to happen. So Lord, show me. Lord, help me. Lord, empower me. Lord, grant to me. Sometimes you'll hear me pray in our gatherings. Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us for the glory of your son. Paul Tripp, in his wonderful book, Instruments of in the Redeemer's hands, instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Human beings need truth from outside themselves to make sense out of life. That truth outside of us is his holy word. Notice with me, secondly, developing a godly foundation in an ungodly world. No more autopilot. I don't know how you've been living your life, making your decisions, but I think this call from the judges is really a call to say, I just can't live my life on autopilot. I need to be, live my life engaged with, with God's word. No more going with the flow. You hear a lie over and over and over again. It becomes less offensive and after a while you begin to court it as reasonable. You become numb to it. No more su- superficiality. The life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I'm going to live my life under the authority of Christ and his word. So God's word and the gospel uh, form my worldview. I I want the decisions of my life to be guided by the scripture. And that is life-giving. I had a significant experience in, in my life here in the late 1990s. We had a staff member, um, Randall Jenkins, who introduced us to John Piper's book, Future Grace. That was such a a moment for me because in that book, among other things, I found what, what does it mean to really bring God's word to bear on all that I'm thinking and all that I'm feeling and how is it really a lamp into my feet and a light into my path? And he He states in one of his chapters, when I'm anxious about the response of my adversaries, I forget the promise of God when I'm that way. Like Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I'm with you, be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Do I believe that or not? When I'm anxious about my ministry being useless and empty, I forget Isaiah 55, 11, which says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. So may I continue to sow it and live it and sow it. When I'm anxious about being too weak to do my work, I battle unbelief with the promise of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. When I'm anxious about decisions I have to make about the future in my life, I battle unbelief with a promise. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 32, 8. When I'm anxious about facing opponents... I will remember Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? When I'm anxious about the welfare of my family, I battle and believe with the promise that if I, being evil, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more shall my heavenly Father give good gifts to me and those who fear him? When I'm anxious about being sick, I battle unbelief with the promise, many are the afflictions of the righteous, 
but the Lord delivers him out of them all, Psalm 34, 19. When I'm anxious about getting old, I battle unbelief with a promise like Isaiah 46, 4. Even in your old age, I shall be the same. And even in your graying years, I shall bear you. I've done it. I will carry you. I shall bear you. I shall deliver you. When I'm anxious about dying, when I come to die, I will battle unbelief with Romans 14, which says not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are his. I can be comforted with that. When I'm anxious about drifting or shipwreck of the faith and falling away from God, I'm reminded he who began a good work in you will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. And he is able to save forever those who draw near to him for he always lives to make intercession for us and on and on and on it goes. So why was that such a watershed for me? It's because I saw in real terms how to bring the word of God into whatever I'm facing and rightly understood in context applied to the needs of my life. And what is true for me is true for the church, it's true for you. From the beginning, believers have had to work out the decisions of their lives. How does the word of God come to bear on, on, the, on the decisions we make? Moral decisions, ethical decisions, financial decisions. That's my appeal here. Instead of doing what's right in our own eyes, by golly, could we have a, 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 a desire today? I want to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. I thought about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Just flip him in the Nile. You shall kill him. But if it is, your, if it is a daughter, you shall uh, let them live. But the midwives feared God. I know you're in charge, but we fear God, not you. And so they did not do what the king said, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called to the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women <laughs> are not like the Egyptian women. They have a baby and then they go work the field. But they feared God, not, not the king. God dealt well with the midwives, the text says. Believers have to make decisions like that all the time. Who am I going to listen to? Here's one I came across recently. One woman asked her pastor, Pastor, I'm a nurse. I feel really called to be a nurse. I really, I'm put on the front line of being able to meet needs as a nurse. I love being a nurse. But can I be a nurse for a hospital that requires me to be a part of gender reassignment surgeries. That's coming to a nurse near to you. She went on to explain, I'm a nurse and surgery pre-op and recovery for a hospital that performs gender reassignment surgeries. I play no role in the decisions made to undergo these surgeries. I believe the decision itself is sinful. And why do we believe that as Christians? Not because we're bigots, not because we're narrow-minded, but because this is a gross assault on God's creative design. That's why. 
It is sexual revolution at the very end. It's a reprobate mindset. Somebody's got to say it. So this nurse is struggling. It's just the question I cannot resolve is this. Is it sinful for me to serve as a nurse involved in the care of these patients in the pre-op and recovery settings? So this faithful pastor said, his answer was, it's going to be that I think she should move her nursing ministry to a place where it's not violating her conscience. These kind of decisions are before believers left and right. And we should be supportive of one another in difficult circumstances. But I think we should all agree that we want to be a place where we're honoring God with the gifts and skills that he's given to us. We're called to be light and salt, which means that we will often be misunderstood and maligned. But we're called to sow love and good deeds in this world. And we are called to love our neighbor as well as our enemy. We are called to reflect the grace of Christ in a world that's lost its way. I read an account from the life of Booker T. Washington this week um, that describes the Christian's role uh, in, in, in this world. Booker T. Washington used to tell the story of a, a storm-tossed transatlantic ship that had run out of drinking water. And they were desperate. And they were approaching the mouth of the Amazon River and the captain signaled a passing boat uh, communicating we really need some water desperately and the, the captain responded throw down your bucket where you are and a sailor lowered a bucket into what was still the Atlantic Ocean and he pulled it back up and the flow of the Amazon was so strong that several miles out to sea the water was fresh Amen. and so they were And so should we as believers throw down our buckets seeing how we impact our culture with truth and love. May we have that longing as we leave here today. Who can I impact for your name, Lord? Who can I witness to this week? Who can I serve this week? It is biblical truth and the authority of Jesus Christ that informs our lives. Whether we're talking about marriage, what it is, how it's defined, or abortion, what if our, a biblical truth informs our conviction on that or sexual sin or transgender debates. And so for the last 70 years, there's been a throwing off of biblical standards and maybe some of you today are like, you are on Mars, pastor. <laughs> what world are you living in? You're like a throwback I'll take it. I'll take it. Because that's where we're to stand, not on what I say is right or wrong, but really to stand on the scripture. I cannot go along with that. This violates God's word. This is a harm to you. I spent an hour this week just reading um, articles, journal articles on uh, the devastating effects of a homosexual lifestyle. Just kind of got diverted into in my study and just started reading and I, I came across one uh, University of Washington study in general it stated that lesbian, gay and bisexual older adults were found to be in poorer health than heterosexuals 
specifically in terms of higher rates of cardiovascular disease, weakened immune system, and low back or neck pain. They also were at greater risk of some adverse health behaviors, such as smoking and excessive drinking, and on and on and on. You have not even to mention the HIV. And you see practical things in a suppressing, even in the practical realm. Often the data like this is twisted to promote an agenda. I'm just speaking matter-of-factly from a secular university who would bend over backwards to champion that cause to say that these, these are indisputable facts. So what do we do? Well, let me close with this. Trust and obey the fruit of the gospel. So rather than doing things that are right in our own eyes, I want to take us to Proverbs 3 and just take the next few minutes to look at this, this approach. This is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here in Proverbs 3, trust and obey the fruit of the gospel. And so wisdom in the Bible is not philosophical sayings. It's, it's skill in life. You don't have to read far in the book of Proverbs to see the urgent call for wisdom and the wonderful promises that come from it. Here is a My Son passage, verse 1, and so there are, I think, about 26 of these throughout the book of Proverbs. My son, and you sense this face-to-face exchange, father and son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. What happens if I do that? And by the way, the father's commandments, the speaker's commandments are the Lord's commands. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. That sounds good, doesn't it? And so, my son, these my son passages unfold with a word of wisdom followed by a promised blessing. Notice this peace he speaks about. Peace they they will add to you. Doing things God's way, he's promised his shalom, his completeness, his fullness. Uh, We live in a groaning creation. Sin has dealt a brutal blow to the world. And so we have accidents and cancers and thousands of other problems that cut life short. In these verses, God is showing the way to his peace, his shalom, his good success, his refreshment. And it's not going solo. It's by embracing what, what God has said in his word. Whatever you are listening to, it's going to lead you in the direction you, you're going. Whatever you are listening to, is it, is it leading you to peace? Is it leading you to God's blessing? Your heart is your security system and every day thieves are trying to rob you of length of days and peace of, of mind. However you define peace, it's not, if it's not in Christ, it's an idol. I'll have peace as long as my bank account is such and such a balance. I'll have peace so long as my family uh, interacts in this way. I'll have peace so long as my my, my boss um, treats me in, in, in a certain way. But the moment that dis- is disrupted, my peace is gone and misery enters in. He says in verses three and four, do not forsake steadfast love and faithfulness. This is covenantal language. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. That's a wonderful statement that comes with doing things God's way. Put them around your neck. 
What would our lives look like, our marriages look like, our families look like, our church look like, our workplace would look like if we wrote these things on our heart and bound them around our neck? There is a quality of life wisdom gives to you that foolishness will never give to you. Look at verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. How do I do that? Well, I I think it's bringing to bear the scriptures on your life. Trust in him. God has not been silent. He has spoken. His spirit is moving in this world, bringing to light the truth of his word. Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. We've just looked at the tragedy of judges. So it is for those who lean on their own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him. Every area of your life, you're looking to him and acknowledging him and, and praising him. And he will make your paths what? Straight. Verses seven and eight, the antithesis of doing what's right in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own understanding. There's a, there's a healthy distrust in our ability to call the shots apart from what God has said. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And this word trust in verse five, in Hebrew it's throwing ourselves down, lying extended before him, casting our hope for the present and the future upon him. He is able. The symptoms that arise from not trusting in the Lord, absence of joy, consistently growing, in our walk with Christ, our love for God lacks passion. And how that affects every relationship of our life. So let me just bring this to a close this morning by asking this question. How are you living your life? Are you doing what's right in your own eyes? Maybe you're afraid, you know, I can't really trust God because then, you know, I'm just gonna be robbed of all the things I want to do, and my life will be miserable. That's the devil's lie. Maybe if you would do an honest assessment of your life and you look back over the decisions you've made, you said, you know, I know what it's like to do what's right in my own eyes. I, I need a change. I need to do what's right in God's eyes. Would it be better, which would be you? I've done right in my own eyes or I'm, you know, I'm trusting in the Lord with all my heart. My life is what it is, <laughs> but I'm trusting in him and I'm leaning not on my own understanding. Instead of what's doing right, doing what's right in your eyes, would you see your need to do what is right in God's eyes? And that begins at the foot of the cross. That begins at seeing what God has done for you in Christ Jesus knowing that your sin has separated you from God and that part of turning your life over to him and trusting him and following him is acknowledging your sin before him. Lord, I've broken your commandments. I've broken your laws. I've fallen short of what you want me to do and how you want me to live. And I call upon your name in Jesus Christ. I call upon his name that you would come and forgive me and save me and set me on the path leading to you 
that I would obey your word and walk in obedience. And when I fail, Lord, I'll keep seeking you because where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I'll unite with a local church where I can be encouraged in the word and be a part of a fellowship where other believers are seeking to honor him, to obey your commission until you come. I'll share the good news with others of how you've transformed my heart. I wanna live for you. I want to live and pursue your ways. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we come to the end of this worship time, would you call out to him? Whether you're a believer dealing with decisions in your life and how you're going to live, or you're not a believer but have been compelled this morning to, to look to Jesus and to call out to him. He is a savior, a redeemer, and a friend, and he will come to us and give us everything that we need. He's our hope in this world, for he has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Father, we bow before you this morning and pray that as we come to this responding in faith time, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be surrendered to you, and you would have your way among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.